This is the strategy inside everything. I'm Adam Pirno. All right, welcome back to another episode of the strategy inside everything. I am joined all the way from beautiful, although cold and windy, uh, New York City by the fantastic Kate O'Neill. She is a strategist, futurist, and the founder of KO Insights. She has also pretty much never stopped doing everything. She is also a speaker and speaks around the world and an author of uh, multiple books, including her most recent book, Tech Humanist, which will probably inform a lot of what we talk about today. Kate, how are you doing today? Doing all right. How about you, Adam? Awesome. I cannot thank you enough for making time. I really appreciate it. I thought oh, you man. might be bored and you were like, I'm not bored. I'm, <laughs> I'm just as busy as I ever was. And I was like, all right. You know, you it's funny. still kind enough to make time. Thanks. It's a... No, I'm really grateful to have this conversation with you. I've been looking forward to it. Uh, but yeah, it's it's funny that I think I think a lot of us are are staying busy. It's just the activities are dispersed in different ways, and the remuneration is different. <laughs> so. The shape of it is a lot different for sure. <laughs> yeah. Give people a sense. Um, there might be one or two people who don't know you already that are listening. But uh, and for those people, uh, would you give them a sense of kind of your background and and who you are and what you've done? Yeah, sure. So I have been in the technology space uh, in general for around 25 plus years. And that started uh, after I was in, in college. I was actually a linguist by education, but I came into uh, into the tech space uh, professionally because at the time that the World Wide Web came to be, I was uh, I was supervising a language laboratory at University of Illinois Chicago, and I built a website there, which was the, turned out to be the first departmental website. It got seen by a guy at Toshiba who recruited me to come to Toshiba uh, in the 90s to build uh, their well, and I ended up building their first intranet at Toshiba, and that whole started a whole series of things. I was the first, I was in the first hundred people at Netflix. I uh, had their first content management role. Uh, so I got to do this really fun series in the 90s of sort of pioneering uh, sort of firsts and and be part of helping figure out a lot of things around content strategy and user experience and, uh, you know, kind of putting some of these pieces together that we didn't necessarily have language for. And then over the next few decades, had done a lot of consulting and writing and speaking and trying to help put frameworks around that and really try to understand how to bring that to a, a more disciplined approach for people. That's really cool background. And really, uh, a lot of there are a lot of futurists out there. And they, a, a futurist is not a typical role. So they have the varied background, which is always for me is always interesting in reading the background of how did they get to a place where they understand, but being there at the forefront of, of the web and of a, at a place like Netflix, even Toshiba at the time when you were there was a cutting edge place. They're still doing pretty amazing things. Yeah. Yeah. They built that. I was working on a project that was documenting the, uh, the chip that went into the Sony PlayStation two. So, you know, Toshiba amazing. and Sony collaborating and it was, yeah, it was very cool sort of, um, forward thinking stuff and, you know, got to learn. I, I, I've really never done anything since then around hardware and chips, but that was, that was my one <laughs> exposure to like that side of the tech space. It hasn't changed Every, very much. They're probably probably the same. <laughs> I would think so. It was really a kind of a fun thing about moving to Silicon Valley in the '90s that there were actually billboards advertising different kinds of chip technologies, and I thought like that really says a lot about a place. You know, years and years later, when I wrote Pixels in Place, I wrote about the meaning of place, and I, and it was one of the things that I really was thinking about. Like everywhere you go, that has kind of a cottage industry, and of course, the cottage industry in the Bay Area is technology. 
you get this sense of that cottage industry ever like what really feeds the economy and the population there yes. by what you know the billboards are and what the kind of local discourse about that is it's so interesting yeah and who's filling the local restaurant or who's i mean not in silicon valley everything is delivery but yeah um, <laughs> well now yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> now well, everywhere it is <laughs> also wondering about your background as a linguist and how that mm-hmm. plays into it too i'm sure you've thought a lot about that and i know it, it's covered in in a lot of your writing but how does that apply to, are you mapping that against looking forward and thinking about how the language we use today and the lexicon that we're using today yeah. is, is evolving in times like we're in right now with uh, everything going on? Yeah, yeah. Everything, it plays into everything and the way I think about everything. So I think about, you know, in my early years in technology, I thought a lot about how uh, semantics was kind of like the communication that was, we were, we were conveying over the lines to each other, you know, what was actually like on the pages and in the messages. And then syntax had more, was sort of more the metaphor for information architecture and how we kind of built the structures that everything was encoded on. And that, that informs a lot of the way I think now, even now about, you know, sort of translating that to the modern web and to um, other other emerging technologies and other forms of communication through technology. And then, and then of course, yeah, like you say, like even thinking about these days in the pandemic and in the time where our communication is happening almost entirely through technology, technological means through zoom calls and things like that. It, it does, you know, there's that element of it too, kind of thinking about what are the nuances of communication that are accentuated and what are the ones that are lost in, in the translation to these kind of screen-based communications. So there's, yeah. there's so many ways to play with that. Yeah, we're using, we're using Zoom right now and we opted to have the uh, video on, although we, we, don't, we are recording it, but I don't hope publish it anywhere so I keep people off the spot. But the face-to-face contact keeps both of us engaged. It will help, definitely will help me get a see how you're reacting to something and say oh this this topic is dead move on or yeah. oh no she's got more i can tell you have more to say or i can there's so many nonverbal cues that i can gain and and vice versa that if if this pandemic i've been thinking about this a lot if the pandemic had happened uh-huh. even 3 years ago without video aspects and it was all conference calls i don't know if companies could be making the progress that they're making now yeah, I, I agree. And it's it's funny because it's not as if, you know, Skype and other voice over IP technologies haven't been right. around. We all know that they have been. Um, but certainly there are, um, I think there are modifications to the ways that we've used them and the ways we've used things like Slack, you know, and, and other other platforms that have facilitated a remoting of work, if not all remote work, right? Like it seems like, you you know, even within teams that are actually on location uh, in one place that are using tools like Slack and tools like Zoom and, and Skype, uh, there's been the, the foundations of that remote work. So I think you're right. I think it would have been even a couple of years ago. This is a very different experience. I, I find Slack less <laughs> effective I don't want to slam Slack. Slack is, a lot of people love Slack. Mm-hmm. But when I compare it to the way where I engage with people on a video call, I just find it less effective. And I almost always, if it's anything thornier than a very simple, like, how you doing? Do you have an update on this? Yes, I do. I'll have it to you by noon. Yeah. Or here's a link. Um, anything more tr- tricky than that to communicate, it's almost always like, do you have two seconds for a chat? 
And the next thing I know, I'm getting a Slack call or a Zoom call. And it's, um, it, there's a hard line that I think we found with Slack during this time where we're, uh-huh. where we're really forced to figure out how we're going to do this in a different location. Have you, have you had better luck with some technologies than others? Yeah. So, you know, it's funny in my career, uh, I'll say my, let me call it my recent career, meaning like the last decade or so of, of my career. Um, I, the last five years I've been a professional speaker and author, and that's been, you know, all of what I do and and some consulting advising in there too. But before that, for five years before that, I was running an agency out of Nashville called MetaMarketer, and it was an analytics and digital strategy agency. And a lot of what we were doing was this kind of uh, remote enabled work. We had teams that were, we we were on location with each other, but we were working with companies all around the world. So there was, we used tools like, um, you know, Basecamp and, and some of these other kinds of tools to capture a lot of our workflow and to try to um, templatize a lot of it. And, and the kind of conversations that we were using in tools kind of like Slack at that time was more of that, um, here's an issue. Here's a response. Like here's a client issue. And we know that we need to address this. Let's try to capture it in the system so that there's some sort of codified knowledge and some way to build upon that over time. And so what I find now is that a lot of these pivots to zoom or pivots to, you know, that kind of, uh, the, the, the one-on-one capturing is a little bit losing some of that, the, the codification of that knowledge. And so there's a, I think there's a balance that we'll probably end up needing to strike where the, the, how we go forward needs to have some root in what is the knowledge that we're trying to amass as an organization yes. when we think about it organizationally, right? Not individually. Uh, and when you read about Slack or or listen to them talk about how it was founded, that's what it, they were trying to create a log. Right. But if the if the organization uses it as a, a proxy for uh, AOL Instant Messenger, right, right, <laughs> there's no, it's no, it's an impossible log. It's impenetrable. Sure. So yeah. Basecamp kept the record, but Basecamp breaks down when people try to add more too much context. Right. And Slack is like. Uh, there's so much context you wouldn't even know how to how to search it. Yeah, it's just too chatty, and I, I think it only yeah. works. There have been environments that I've been part of as a consultant where they used, you know, that's an, another thing too, is that as somebody who dips into organizations for projects and then dips back out, like it's it's a very weird tool for me because everything is so organizationally based. It's not, you know, it's it's not like email where we can just do this kind of one-off exchange and even have a thread. And that's there. It's preserved in each of our clients. And so each each Slack instance, I have to join, I have to be added to. And then it's, you know, kind of the context, the taxonomy is based on the organization, which is good in some ways. But that's the kind of adjustment I've had to make as someone who who's a consultant or a freelancer, like dipping into these organizations. But I will say that some organizations do a better job than others of kind of keeping that chattiness, you know, to, to one channel or another. And, and having more productive channels that are like, okay, here's where we're keeping the knowledge about this client or this project or whatever. Yeah. And those, uh, uh, part of what I wanted to talk to you about today is that idea of the stratification of which part is for which part of the roles, because at work with your families, with getting, getting new clients, as you pointed out before we started uh, recording, 
there's no, no. Th- there's no single thing that we're doing. There's a personal part. Right. Well, small talk. There's the work part. There's the hardcore project management part. There's the ancillary part or the management part. They're, they take on a lot of threads. And it's one of the challenges I have personally had is we're on Slack, but maybe I should now turn this into an email yeah. <laughs> or I should go to our project management system or I should go to the Google Docs where we've been capturing thoughts on this. And I'm wondering if you've seen in, in um, the organizations you're working with or people you're talking to, how that is really forcing thought uh, among organizations and people about how they're handling all those different parts of your your splintered personalities that are all projected through one rectangle. Yeah, I mean, right now, I feel like it's a whole reinvention for everyone. Like, I, th- I think this, you know, great pause, quote unquote, has has forced that reckoning uh, where even what seemed like good workflows before, you know, like I think the, the observation has been made a bunch of times that we're all not just working from home right now. That's not, that's not, this isn't like normal working from home. This right. is working from home in a pandemic with a great amount of existential stress and anxiety. <laughs> Duress. You know, <Yeah>. you're right. <laughs> and, and in many cases, you know, uh, kids at home or sick family members or whatever. And that's, that's a very, very different situation from what it would normally be for, for most people. So, so I think that's an important consideration. And it's, it's also important as, as a keynote speaker, I've been noticing that a lot of my uh, peers are talking about, well, I've been doing virtual presentations for a long time. I'm like, well, yes, I have too, but I didn't do them in this context and you right. didn't either. And I didn't no present did. this material right. via <laughs> right. this thing. And it's hard. It's, it's a weird yeah. shift. And then I'm, aren't you half wondering like when you're in a room and there's a thousand people there and you can hear the laugh or you can hear a gasp or you can see the faces that that didn't connect, they didn't get it. And you can go say like, hold on, I want to re-explain this one more time. Yeah. Yeah. Isn't it weird to be presenting it virtually and just be looking at the chat to see if anybody's going to follow up? You have no yeah, idea. It is, but also I think I've I've been I think there's been a lot of really great learning and sharing amongst uh, my peers and my colleagues in the speaking space. So I've attended a lot of virtual events as well as presenting a lot of virtual events yeah. in this time to try to sort of observe what's working. And one of the one of the tricks I've I've uh, learned from others and have been using and passing on to others is you know, to really engage people in the chat. So you get, you know, you can use proxies, you can use exclamation points as laughter, you can use, uh, you know, have people type a one single character for like, type Y, if you agree that yes, you know, you, yes, I have been experiencing some existential angst during this right. time or whatever you can, and you can see this flood of that one single character. And it's a little bit like the exhilaration of hearing laughter or seeing heads nodding at least it gets you some kind of sense of engagement with the people that are on the other side of those screens everywhere. Yeah. And it's not, it's not the same, but I, I feel like one of the great things about this is that we will get to sort of rethink some of the proxies for human interaction. And that is going to help us going forward. We are going to be able to think about how the emerging technologies uh, that we are creating that, that, that will facilitate different kinds of communication, different kinds of human experiences can embed some of that understanding of what are the proxies of meaningful human experience when your only connection is like screen-based or text character-based. And that's important, I think. Yeah. And what I was thinking, do you think that is more of a function of people learning to better 
to master the technology that we have today? Or is that more of people getting an insight into how to relate to other people and what they need at that moment? <laughs> it's probably a little bit both, right? I mean, is that your instinct as you ask that question? I don't know. I, I, just, <laughs> I was thinking it out as it came out. So I'm not sure yet. <laughs> I'm not sure yet. It feels like both to me. And, you know, one thing that you learn about me after spending even five minutes with me is that I'm a default both and answerer. Like that's that's okay. <laughs> I'm an it depends person. So I get it. <laughs> and everything does depend, but it's also to me, a lot of things are both and a lot of things make much more sense in an integrative framework than a, in an exclusionary one. So, so I would think that more, more likely than not, it is the fact that we need to understand the technologies and the media that we have now better. And also that we need to understand how to relate to each other better and building upon that, I guess, like how do how do we read the signals of what the interaction with each other mean? I mean, everybody has had yeah. this kind of understanding for a long time that sort of sarcasm doesn't translate in email, and you know you can't you can't have some of the nuances of communication come across in written language. Like people people joke about the sarcasm font on Twitter and things like that, um, but that's that's just. Uh, um, us not being able to read each other very well, us not being able to kind of make that leap across the, the limits of the chasm of that technology and say, like, here's what's really happening. Here are where the intents are. And here's where, you know, we need to understand what's really uh, what we're really trying to get across. Yeah, I am on record as saying uh, emoji are off brand for me. I don't use emoji, but I have okay. learned that during this time. <laughs> Shit, man. Sometimes you just have to use emojis. You have to add an, ex, an extra exclamation point. You have to do a winky face so that people know. <laughs> I've, I've shifted at the beginning of this from like, what do I need to get through 10 hours at my desk in my guest room to, oh, what is the other person on the other end of this message? What do they need to know what I'm really asking and so that they feel supported and it doesn't come across as threatening, but it comes across as inquisitive or helpful and much more thinking about these these pixeled characters they don't look like they may not look the same to them getting it as yeah. to me sending it absolutely uh, have you read the book um because internet uh oh, understanding yet. the new rules of language gretchen mccullough um wrote this book uh, i think it came out last year and uh, it's fantastic. And it's one of the things that I, when you're when we're talking about this, it makes me think of a lot of what she explores as a linguist looking at uh, language and how it communicates over the Internet. And I do think about like the difference between an ASCII character smiley face versus an emoji smiley. Right. And, and um, or versus using a GIF that sort of suggests a smile or a laugh. There's such a there's such a difference there. And it's a. Um, you need a fluency in the language that that is in order to get the real meaning across. But you also need to know the fluency level of the person on the other side. Yeah. Right. <laughs> and that's one of the tricky things I think about this. So when I, I keep coming back to in, in even metaphorically, I keep coming back to this understanding of meaning as uh, a, a sort of three part thing. There's, there's the, intent of the speaker. You know, if you're trying to convey something to someone, there's what you're actually trying to get across. There's the message itself as its own node or its own kind of nugget. And then there's what the listener receives of that information. And all three of those are different. And then there's there's potentially overlap between those three things. You hope, you hope that there's yeah. overlap, right? <laughs> and the more overlap there is, the more shared understanding there is, 
which is the more meaning that there is. But you also have to take into consideration uh, context that wraps this entire thing uh, up and, and what context is creating it are these limitations of uh, and expansions of what can be understood. And I think one of the things that why I go back to saying, you know, none of us, none of these, my fellow keynote speakers have ever done virtual presentations in this moment because the context is completely different. The fact that this is all we have uh, changes the scenario quite a bit. So no matter how much experience any of us have in doing virtual, we have never done it where all anybody had was the screen <laughs> to be able to engage with like new knowledge being presented in that format. Yeah. So I, I think the, those are all really important considerations to kind of thinking through like, where do we go from here and how do we understand how we even create meaningful experiences, how we create meaningful connections with one another, how we build upon the under, like the, the sense of nuance that's there and make sure more of that nuance is understood. Yeah, the it comes are, back to gifts. Right? Yeah, oh, everything comes back to <laughs> gifts all the time. Um, Emojis. <laughs> some of the work I've done with experiences uh, are, show that there's no no experience exists in a vacuum, and so right, there's, there's right. everything's interconnected in every part of your life. If you go in, and um, I always tell the story about I went into the bank last year, and it was two days before my birthday, and I they asked for my ID, and I gave them my ID, and spontaneously. The person looked at my ID and just started singing happy birthday. And the two oh. people to her left and right, like <laughs> took a step over and barbershop quartetted me <laughs> happy birthday because I was the only person in there. And it was lovely. Amazing. However, however, I will never forget. And I will be a customer of that bank until something dramatic right. happens. <laughs> but like what, ha what I needed, the financial transaction I was trying to make wasn't it meant to be a happy one. And it, I was like, oh. well, now I'm happy. But now I'm conflicted. I'm an emotionally weird place. So the experience was great. I still tell people about it. In fact, this is the first time I've told the story with the but. Yeah. To demonstrate that the, um, how connected the systems are and how much context is important. And so your, your point about, yes, we've all done virtual presentations. Right. We've pitched business. We have sure. presented to our boss virtually. But now it feels like, hey, the stakes are different. Mm -hmm. I don't know why. It feels like anytime I log on, I'm waiting for someone from HR to be on the other side of that thing that's like, hey, oh, no. like, right? Yeah, I, I don't know why. I just feel like the end is coming for something. Um, <laughs> it could be a me problem. Or, um, <laughs> or just the general context, because everything is coming through the rectangle, yeah. we're all slack is up and email. And I don't want to miss an email because I have no excuse not to. So maybe I'll just quickly flip off of what Kate's saying and just look at email real quick. And yeah. so we're, we're all scrolling and the kids are coming in and asking questions about math. So yeah. I think the context is a lot different. Yeah, it's, it, it changes. I think, you know, we, we know this about how experiences happen in place too. Like that, this is, again, comes back to, I wrote uh, Pixels in Place in 2016. And, uh, you know, a lot has changed since then. But the intent of, of that book was to really examine uh, how physical connections and, and uh, or physical spaces and virtual spaces or, you know, physical experiences and digital experiences connect with one another and how we can create more meaningful experiences as a whole by understanding the reality of both of those like uh, dualities, I guess you could say. And, and, and what you cover is kind of what each one does for you uniquely. 
Yeah, yeah. But but also I think one of the things of that um was interesting about that is to think about the the elements of say physical space and how different kinds of physical space change the nature of of the experience that you're having. So, you know, being in a church is different from being in a museum, which is different from being in an office. And, you know, the kind of conversations that you're willing to have or that you, you know, kind of feel compelled to not have, you know, those kinds of things all change. And so I think this is very similar to that in the sense that we are relegated to, as you say, this rectangular screen, this box of viewing all of our interactions. Uh, everything has kind of come down to this this rectangle. Uh, and and that really, I think, changes the way we think about what's possible and what we should be saying, what we should not be saying. And so there, there's just there's a lot that that kind of uh, shifts our our expectations and our understanding of that. Yeah, I think about um, in preparing for this, I was wondering about empathy as you know, if you watch a character on TV even on the news, you, there's a limit to the empathy you can feel in a lot of cases, depending on how it's how a story is presented. Um, and I, I've been thinking about if I only engage with people through video chats, <clears throat> so there's people I know, but let's say we hire, let's say I get a new client and they only know me through that. Um, how do I quickly figure out how to connect with that person when I when I don't get that interpersonal, the true interpersonal uh, time with them and how I make, how do I earn that same, that same empathy from them or that same connectedness with them when it's just, I'm just moving pixels. Yeah. And I have to say that quite honestly, I have found it in the last few weeks, in some cases easier to, to uh, make connections over the phone versus being on a Zoom call. Um, Because I think there's maybe ways in which, you know, a lot of us are getting Zoom burned out uh, and yeah. and also, I think the um, the the conditions are different, and there's expectations that aren't sometimes met. Like maybe the lighting is bad, maybe you know your your connection is bad, maybe you have some distractions in the background or or something like that, or maybe I do, and maybe all of that is causing there to be barriers in our in our rapport that wouldn't exist over the phone, ironically, because we wouldn't have, you know, we'd have sort of our imagination open in that space. So I, I've actually found days? that, yeah, right, right. I've actually found that in some ways to be easier. Like I think uh, if I have a sales call, I'm very great. I'm really grateful when it can happen over the phone and not on Zoom. because It's less distracting. Like we'd stay focused on the mission of the call. Well, that's interesting. So, the, the, so all the ancillary stuff of like what's on the bookshelf behind the person, or you know, any kind of visual cues become a sensory overload. Plus, if they are taking it on a literal phone, yeah, and then they're less tempted to flip over to Slack really quick and see if they got a message while you're presenting a slide or while you're talk, answering their question. Yeah, probably that too. And I think there's just a level of um, relief that some people are feeling right now too, right? When they're on a phone as opposed to being like stuck in front of a screen because they can pace a little bit and they can they can stand, they can walk, they can, you know, do a little, like fix themselves a cup of coffee or something. And, th- and that's not, you know, you're not able to do that when you're on a, a Zoom or whatever kind of call. 
and and I, I think there's a sense that, you know, maybe everybody's just a little burned out. I've actually seen a lot of my friends tweeting this kind of sentiment. I tweeted it back in early April. <laughs> I was like, I'm done. <laughs> like, and I'm a huge extrovert. It's, it's not that I don't like the connection. I really do. I really love being able to see people and I, I want the connection. But I do feel like, you know, it was clear to me even then that there are ways in which it's kind of too much information for what's needed at the time. You know, yeah. if you just need to get something done and kind of have a mission-based uh, sort of communique, uh, this this may be too much information. Yeah, it's more efficient. You can pack a lot more into it and there's less, I guess when you don't see people, you're less obligated to do things like small talk or less like, you know, comment on their lighting yeah. or whatever's happening in the background sometimes and i think you know that's nice it's nice if the small talk is is part of creating a, a real connection and a real genuine you know human uh moment but uh as often i think as often as not small talk doesn't really do that so <laughs> <laughs> yeah well sometimes it's just filling time right right or start stalling a conversation that you didn't want to start or that the person is is trying to figure out how to how to enter yeah. And, and so I don't know, I, I, I guess I kind of think about the ways that we go uh, forward from this and what, what we build into like the new, the new modalities, the new interactions, the, you know, and, and, and what does it look like to have been informed by this moment? And I hope that what it means is that we will be um, more, more sensitive to the possibility of, you know, sort of just enough information on one hand, you know, kind of creating the right context that's, um, that's just limited enough to be able to be efficient for what needs to be done. But also on the flip side of that, to be able to create more nuanced communicate, sort of like more uh, contextually aware environments, you know, that, that bring in more of the, the senses and allow people to, to have fuller engagements with one another. Because obviously if you're trying to have like a family gathering via a, a video call, you want there to be a more kind of connected experience. Yep. Have you tried it? We tried it on Easter yeah. Sunday. Yeah. It was pretty weird. We, we've done a few. It's kind of, it's always funny because there's always someone who's struggling a little bit, you know, with their connection. And <laughs> there's always someone, usually me, who gets relegated to sort of the tech support role. And it's like it plays out the exact same way every time. Yeah. There's a lot of like, well, now point the camera this way so we can see this person better. Do the, yeah. It's like, well, this is kind of. a lot of exactly. comedy in it. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it doesn't feel when it's your family though, it doesn't always feel like comedy right away. You know, we're laughing about no. it now. In the moment right? like, like God damn it, why is it like this? It's the same roles that you've had in your family all your life and they're just <laughs> playing out in different ways. <laughs> but you know, it's it's wonderful that this exists. And I I've you know, I wrote about it in I don't know, one of my books, I can't remember at some point that that uh even as long as video calling has been possible, it still feels like magic to me. And I would say that's even still true. The fact that we can get through this pandemic um, with video calls being kind of the norm at this point is kind of magical. I think that's that's really one of those places where um, it's easy to write off the technology. It's easy to, you know, and I've been kind of jokingly dismissing it and talking about the limitations of it, but I still do think that it is pretty magical. It is pretty amazing to be able to do this and to, for you to be in Arizona, me to be in New York and, and have like a face-to-face -face communication. That's yeah. astonishing. But I, but you make a good point. It is amazing. Every time it works. Yeah. Like, oh, this is, 
What? I mean, for two people that came from the beginning of the internet when, right. remember they couldn't get video to play. Yeah. Remember real player would just always be constantly <laughs> updating every day you try to use it. Well, that's what, and then that's a story that I tell a lot about. Like, that's what's so amazing to me about, you know, being at Netflix in 99, 2000, 2001 timeframe when, you know, we're in 2000, we were still in like all out bloody battle with Blockbuster for market dominance. I mean, it was not even, it was not clear that Netflix was even going to survive because Blockbuster was so much bigger and so much more of a behemoth who was established in the space. So, you know, and they tried their their uh, rental program, which was you know, kind of hilarious because it required you to actually drive to the store every day or something if you wanted to get the most thing most out of it. Uh, but anyway, you know, that that was happening. We were we were still doing that. And Reed Hastings had the presence of mind and the vision to say, like, let's divert some research and development money into, you know, set top boxes, which was the predecessor to streaming as we know it. Right. And that wouldn't come out for, you know, 2006 was when Roku came out and 2007 was when there's a dedicated streaming plan on Netflix, but that's, you know, six, seven years horizon at that time to be a startup who's, who's kind of coming up against such a, you know, 900 pound gorilla and be trying to figure out how you're going to not only survive this, but be the innovator on the next stage. I think that's fascinating. And that that's always been so inspiring to me to think about, you know, when we talk about like futurism and, and what that looks like, to me, it's, it isn't always about, you know, kind of picturing the far ahead future. It's just about really having some confidence about what your next step should be, the yeah. next few steps, you know? Any, any thoughts that you have or have had recently about what are the next short steps based on if, if we are work, if everybody is working from home, or I shouldn't say everybody, but everybody yeah, who's working right. from home today is, is still working from home in six months, an evolution of of what all this looks like from a, from a workplace perspective, I can isolate one area for you instead of asking the most broad question in the world. Yeah, right. <laughs> we definitely have a broad area to, to think about. I mean, beyond the workplace, cause uh, there's so much to talk about in terms of restaurants and theaters and whatever else, but yeah, but, um, but from the workplace perspective, I do think that it's, it's possible that, um, and, and I know some, in fact, some offices have already begun to open back up in different parts of the U S. And so you've got, you know, kind of, approaches to how do we either do shifts or uh, really spread people out or have plexiglass barriers or whatever. Twitter just saying, you know what, we're just going to let people work remotely and we'll figure it out. We'll go day by day and figure out what's the best way to manage all that. Right. And then other companies like Google saying, well, at least till the end of 2020. And then, you know, who knows beyond that? I think that's going to become the norm. It's going to be like extending, 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 and then, you know, there's going to have to be sort of hybrid policies in place. That was kind of always inevitable. I think that, you know, a lot of folks sort of viewed the the um, opportunity for remote work and distributed workforces as an inevitability. And this is almost like the, the force that's tipping it toward that. Um, but that doesn't mean that it's going to be easy. I mean, certainly there's going to have to be a lot of evolution in terms of um, management and accountability. There's been a lot more uh, surveillance that's creeped up, which is, you know, kind of disturbing that, that, uh, companies feel like they need to have surveillance as a form of, of oversight and and management. Uh, so I hope that, I hope that we learn better skills than having to sort of creep on our employees, uh, computers. (laughs) 
seems like not a good approach to me. I don't think me. we have, a, as a species, we don't have a good history of releasing a surveillance <laughs> tool and then rolling it back when we when we didn't need it anymore. Right, so, right. Uh, yeah, we, you're right, but I don't know. Big conversation happening around that in in a broader sense too, around you know the contact tracing, immunity passports, like all of these different uh, aspects of of um, different kinds of data tracking and sharing and surveillance that that are going to more than likely come into play. And yeah, how how we put some kind of barriers around that to be able to roll it back uh, or keep it from uh, having mission creep. Uh, that's that's really important conversation. Yeah, I'm hoping they have those questions, but it, in the work in the workplace mm-hmm. more specifically, um, I hope some of those things that that are being spun up are realized after three, six months. It's like, oh, this really isn't benefiting us. Yeah, not necessary and takes a lot of, of uh, transactional overhead, you know, to to monitor as opposed to learning better mechanisms for having teams um, collaborate and communicate and, you know, kind of keep status updated in, in meaningful ways. Yeah. Uh, and how, how does it make sense or how, you know, how can you get your team to be kind of, uh, motivated in the right way and moving in the right direction and can, you know, incrementally making progress on something so that it doesn't really matter if they're spending this five minutes on the project or that five minutes on right, the project. Exactly. Yeah. And a definition of what productivity means. Right. Does it, does it mean being at your desk? Does it mean that you were available on Slack every minute of the whatever the period designated period is? Or does it mean that you met your project goal, you delivered what was meant to be delivered in a, you know, at the quality it was intended on time? Yeah, exactly. I tell this story too about one of the one of my other favorite stories from Netflix is when I first came to the company, I uh, was put in charge of a team of content producers uh, and I didn't know any of them. I didn't know anything about them. But what I found out was that most of them lived in Santa Cruz. And uh, this is, you know, companies in Las Gatas. So this is just over the mountain and they're on the ocean. Um, and I found out that they were <laughs> three or four of them were all calling in sick on the same days. And this happened three or four times before someone kind of, you know, so almost like sort of passing me in the hallway, like whispering in my ear, like, check the surf report. <laughs> and I learned that it was that they were surfers. The people who lived in Santa Cruz were were living in Santa Cruz partly because that yeah. they loved surfing. And so I had this I had to sit down with my team and I was like, hey, you know, kind of educate me. I don't know anything about surfing. I've never done it. Uh, so what does the timing look like? You know, what does the day look like for you? And so they were like, well, we go out first thing in the morning. And I'm like, well, when are you done? When do you kind of come in for the day? And I'm like, yeah, you know, it's not sort of 10, 11, you know, maybe latest noon. Uh, I'm like, well, then come in after that. <laughs> like, just, just come in. Don't burn a sick day for that. Yeah, yeah. Like, it doesn't make sense to take the entire day off. If you feel like you can get in a, a morning of surfing and then come into the office and put in a good, you know, however many hours it takes to get your work done and contribute for that day, then that's all that really matters. And they're like, really, we can do that? Like, Absolutely. Like, to me, it makes no sense to be arbitrarily focused. And of course, you know, we were in an environment where that was possible. Other environments may not, you know, the kinds of work may not lead to that kind of flexibility, but where it's possible, I don't understand why why there isn't more flexibility. And that flexibility now has to include a lot of, you know, homeschooling, a lot of adaptability for taking care of sick family members. There's, There's just a lot of new kinds of variables that uh, I think leaders and managers are going to have to get awfully good at, at figuring out how to build rapport with their teams, build trust with their teams and have open communication that flows every which way. 
uh, and surveillance is not going to cut it. No, I don't think that's the, I don't think that's the key <laughs> to building healthy relationships. No. <laughs> <laughs> well, Kate, I appreciate it. This has been uh, time well spent. Thank you very much for, for carving out an hour for me. Thank you. It's been really fun to talk with you. Next time, just by phone. Next time, just yeah. by phone. I won't make you do the video. <laughs> where can people find you on the interwebs? Uh, you know, a lot of places where I am is uh, online on, on the social media. So you can find me on Twitter at K-O, K-A-T-E-O. Uh, my website is koinsights.com. And I'd love to have you check me out there and, and connect with me wherever you find me. Absolutely. I will link to all those things. I will also add a link to Because Internet, which is the book that we yeah. talked about. So people can... Um, Great book. Can find that. I mean, I personally don't have a lot of downtime. You know, I'm out and about all over the place, so I won't be able to read it, but <laughs> <laughs> I've got all the time in the world. <laughs> and my free HBO trial just ran out. So I, I think, oh, I'm, no. I think I'm going to be <laughs> buying that book. All right. We stay safe and healthy, and thank you for having me on. You too. Wait, don't stop listening. The show's not over. If you liked what you just heard, or you've liked any of the episodes of Strategy Inside Everything, do me a favor. I really appreciate it. Leave a review wherever you listen to the show, whether it's Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, wherever. Please leave us a rating and a review. Please, if you can, share this episode or another episode with a friend. Let them know what you liked about it. Uh, That helps us quite a bit. If you have ideas for guests, for topics, follow up on episodes you've heard, you can tweet at us, at APierno, that's me, or at strategy underscore inside, that's the show. Either way, I promise I will respond to you and get back to you right away. And listen, running this show is a labor of love. I really do it just because I enjoy the conversations, but it does cost money. So web hosting costs money. Microphones cost money. My kids' haircuts cost money. If you wouldn't mind, look at our Patreon. It's Patreon, uh, Adam Pierno there and you could help us out quite a bit. For more information about all the guests we've had, anything you want to know about the podcast, uh, my two books, Underthink It in Specific, or ways to engage with me as a strategy consultant or as a speaker at your next event, please go to adampierno.com and you'll find all the information you want. And if you can't, just send me a note. Thanks a lot.